you know, first things first, you know, it's in when you're, I would say every parent needs to trust their instincts when it comes to their own child. Like, you know your child um, better than anybody else. So, of course, you're going to talk to your child's teacher and see if they see what, what you think you see and have that discussion there. You definitely want to, as a parent, make sure all avenues have been tried before the referral process. Because the referral process is really, you know, why do you suspect your son or daughter um, has a disability, has a disabling condition? It's the Empowerment Perspective Podcast, hosted by Demiso Josie and Mr. Kareem Spence. Stay empowered. Stay empowered. All right, welcome to yet another episode of the Empowerment Perspective Podcast. I go by the name of Dr. Demiso Josie, and I'm joined as usual by Mr. Petty. How's it going, sir? Well, I'll say this, right? First day I get a chance to work from home in rain. That makes no sense at all. Like the weather couldn't be a little better. Um, outside of that, man, I mean, we get to petty holidays, man. People start buying like petty gifts and hanging up like petty decorations. Yeah, it makes sense. So, wait a minute. So, uh, I think it's a good idea that it's raining because you're supposed to be working anyway. What, what do you need, you know, the sunshine and all that stuff for? You telling me? Because last time you was like, you had a problem with sitting on the couch. You glad uh, you went back. Now, y'all mm-hmm. shut it down. You went back to mm-hmm. remote and you telling me yeah. that you, you, you need sunshine? Absolutely. I mean, what's the sense of being home if the sun's not going to be out? Like it, all, all the other days, it was nice and sunny, 75 degrees outside in October. We had the, you know, the unusual weather. Now, all of a sudden, it would have rained on the first day. Makes sense. Makes sense. We're still, we're all still hybrid where I am, which, you know, I feel some kind of way about, but I'm just going to let that slide for now. Jamie, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I actually enjoyed my first day home. I see you still got the Christmas tree up. Nothing's changed. Oh, we're waiting. We're still waiting. Waiting for what? For Santa to come. All right. We, I'm not going to have this discussion with you again, Jamie. Not right now. We're not going to do that right now. That's just creepy for her. we wait for a guy to show up at our house at midnight in the red suit. <laughs> Maybe she's used to creepy guys in red suits coming to the house at midnight. Maybe that's the thing. Well, she did have that cable guy. I kept asking if she was good. <laughs> that's funny that is hilarious well, on the last podcast we had uh steven bowler stand tall steve on what you guys think about that show that steve is awesome man he he just brings about a different energy so i, I can imagine you know what it was like working for him in the building when when you have that much positive energy that walks through the door every single day so uh, he, he's just awesome, man. I'm, I'm just happy that, you know, he's just extended himself to be able to work, you know, with other schools outside of just being working in a single school. So he's good. Makes sense. Now, Jamie, did you get offended when he said that COVID is a short person's uh, virus? Did, were you offended by it? Um, I was not offended because I, it's not true. Um, there, I, there are a lot of tall people that are quarantined right now. Quarantining. Actually, I know more tall people that are, that are quarantining than tall people. Wait a minute. Everybody tall compared to you. So, of course, you know a lot of tall people. <laughs> you, can't, you can't throw that out there like that. But uh, what, what was your impressions of the, the podcast? He has so much energy with him. He was, he's a great speaker. And, again, I could only imagine working under him. It's all positivity. I couldn't get any negative vibes from him at all. So that was Stan Tall Steve. We talked about educational leadership specifically. Uh, we didn't really dig into leading into, you know, during the COVID season, but we did talk about um, how an educational leader can impact all aspects of school and, and it's really about relationship building. So if you haven't taken a minute to take that out, check that out, check that out. We also talked about our um, toy drive. So we can't do it um, in person. So we're doing a virtual toy drive for the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Again, shout out to those people who already donated. We are so close to our $2,000 mark. I think we're at seventeen ten right now. Um, so we only need a couple more hundred, and we definitely going to make that. And I, I definitely know we're going to make it because I didn't make my donation yet because I wanted mm-hmm. to see where everybody else you know, was going to put into it. But um, 
on this podcast um, when it comes to the world of special education. There's probably only a few people that I actually trust to actually talk about special education and know exactly what they're talking about. Um, she's a great, a phenomenal educator. Um, she knows all things special education. And I, I leaned on her early in my uh, administrative career to, to actually learn a lot about special education. But the more I got to learn, learn about this person, um, I learned that she likes to read a lot. And we started reading a lot of the same books and we kind of, you know, conversations started getting a little bit deeper. Then I found out her husband, I believe was a Temple alumni or worked for Temple, just made it even better. And he's in technology as well. So I couldn't pass up the opportunity Although this person has been ducking us for three years now, so she better come with some content that is going to be fired. But um, it's my pleasure to introduce everybody to Miss Kathleen Sweeter. How are you doing, Kathleen? Great, and um, no pressure. No pressure to be so. <laughs> That's what you do. I put pressure on you. <laughs> no, actually, I'm thrilled to be here, and uh, I I absolutely owed you after all those years of saying, mm -hmm. yeah, sure, yeah, okay, no, next week I'm too busy. You treated us like we were the IRS. I get it. We sent you a couple of slips, some pink slips, and they finally got the red. And then Jamie taken, was like, I got this. Taken for granted that you'd always be around. And then I was wrong. We talked off air, offline, about Jamie's ulterior motives and why she got you on his podcast in the first place. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, Jamie teaches in special education and at one point in time, we were all in the same building at one point in time, but then I guess Jamie decided to go to another building. So when I leave, she gets back. Well, before I left, she came back into the building. Um, and now she's asking to leave again. So that's why she got Kathleen on, on the show. Ain't that right, Jamie? <laughs> that, that is true. It, it, that's pretty petty of her, ain't it, Kareem? Listen. She's taking notes from the best. That's all I can say. She's rubbing off her. And her little, her little, she has little petty ways. That's what we're going to call it. Well, let's take this to uh, special education. Let's first talk about we're big on why people do what they do. Um, so I'm going to ask you, Kathleen, why special education? What, what, what made you go into this direction? Are you uh, sure you only have a few minutes? Because I've never been known for telling a short story. That's fine. I'll listen. All right. Um, why special education? I think it all uh, originally stemmed from my early volunteer work. And, you know, if you start working with somebody who has special needs, yeah, and, it, and if it's for you, there's just going to be something in, inside of you that triggers. And, and you're going to realize that you're getting so much more out of what you're doing, you know, than what you think you're providing. Um, you're, you know, it's, it's hard work but it's really uplifting work. So did a lot of volunteer work as a kid, thought, you know, this was gonna be my calling, gonna go into special ed and, you know, gonna, this, this is it. And ended up at a college that insisted if you were gonna be a special education major, you also had to be an elementary major, a dual major. And, uh, and that's what they were producing. And I think they were way ahead of their time because um, I hate to admit this, but this was in the eighties. So, um, you know, they they were talking about what a classroom would look like, which is what we live in now, where it's gen ed students, special education students, you know, for the most part um, in the same environment all day long. So they ins they insisted on that. And um, I thought, well, this gen ed stuff is a waste of my time, but I, I'll do it because it's part of the program. Uh, and then um, during college, I started volunteering at Holmesburg Prison and I started tutoring. And that completely changed my trajectory because um, I met, you know, like every person I tutored were adult males who couldn't read or write. And, you know, I hate to say I was naive in, you know, my early 20s, but I was shocked by that. You know, like how, how could this person, you know, get through a school system and not be able to read or write? So then that completely changed my course. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I really want to go gen ed you know, and teach people how to read, like get in there early. Um, so that changed everything. And I start working in Camden because I wanted to work in, you know, inner city school district and um, taught first grade, which I never thought I would want to teach really little kids. Like I was picturing like middle school um, special ed kids, but I was like, if I'm going to teach someone to read, that's where you have to start. 
So um, it was amazing. And it probably made me, you know, um, the best teacher I could be because unfortunately that school did not have tons of services. So, you know, I, I never knew about any special ed services when I was there as a gen ed teacher. I didn't know what was available to me. It was kind of like, you know, you, you make it or you don't on, you know, on your own. And it's not just, it's not you as the teacher, it's, you know, they're for your kids. So, um, so it, it's, so in my world, special ed and gen ed has intertwined. And I really think that's the reality of special ed. It's, it's hard to look at it in isolation, you know, and you, you know, cause of personal reasons, I ended up, you know, going into another district. Um, and then that's where I was a gen ed teacher and I saw students that had needs and I saw the services that were there. And I was advocating for my students to get the services. And um, let, let's just say I was having a discussion with an administrator, um, a very, a very lively discussion. And um, he basically said to me, well, you know, when you get your special ed degree, let me know. And I said, I, I have it. <laughs> and um, I got one of those phone calls over the summer. I, you're going to be teaching special ed in September. <laughs> and again, it was the perfect move at the perfect time. Because uh, I was able to take all that, you know, um, information that I got from gen ed, which maybe I, you know, you don't have in your college program, like you don't really learn classroom management in your college program, you don't really, really learn, the, you know, the standards and the curriculum in your college program, you learn a lot of theory. So I had all that. And I really think that made me a better special education teacher, because like, I knew what the goal was, I knew where I had to get those kids. Um, to make sure that they ultimately, if they could, end, ended up in some kind of a, you know, integrated program. So, long road. It's interesting. Interesting story, the volunteering and all that. Um, I kind of want to go into, take two different paths in this conversation. I want to start with for those parents, because when I come across right now as an education uh, leader is that a lot of parents either don't understand the process they don't understand what's involved in, in, in special education. Um, nine times out of 10, they probably heard it from a teacher saying that you should look into this. Um, so let's go from the beginning in terms of um, the referral process. What does that mean um, to a parent? Um, like, how would you break that down to, to a parent? Sure. So that's a, a, a great area to focus on because so many parents don't know about it. Either A, it, it wasn't something that they, you know, people relate their own experience in school. So either like, you know, they didn't experience that when they were in school, or some people experienced it when they were in school as students themselves. But special education has changed so much in 30 years that sometimes I, I think um, some parents are almost afraid to go that route, you know, because they think it's going to be this, the experience they had. Hmm. So, you know, first things first, you know, in, in when you're I would say every parent needs to trust their instinct when it comes to their own child. Like you know your child um, better than anybody else. So of course you're going to talk to your child's teacher and see if they see what, what you think you see and have that discussion there. You definitely want to, as a parent, make sure all avenues have been tried before the referral process, because the referral process is really, you know, why do you suspect your son or daughter um, has a disability, has a disabling condition. And, and some people don't look at special ed that way. Mm. They think like, oh, th this is just going to be some extra help for my child. My child needs help. They're not making it. But it, it really, special education, you know, by law was designed for an individual who has a disability and they really can't access their education in a gen ed model without some kind of level of support. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the number one thing because if if you're not ready to even as a parent consider the conversation that your child might have a disability, you know you, you kind of can't go any further in that process. Right. So that that's the first thing. So can you and you know even even as um, a parent myself, like I sat down and you know talked to my own child's teacher and said like, is it the content or is it the pace of the content like you sometimes you have to have a deeper conversations mm -hmm. with with your child's teacher to get there now for the referral process you know every district is going to do things a little bit differently even though there is a special education law that lays out the process 
Um, there's a, a lot of good advocacy groups, like SPAN is a great group if you're looking for information. Um, you can go on the Department of Ed website and, and get um, a parent's rights in special education booklet. You, you know, and you, the child study team is usually a district-wide team, not necessarily in every building, but someone in your child's building can connect you with that team to, to get some of that, that initial paperwork. But ultimately, um, the team in school consists of a school psychologist, um, a learning consultant, a psychologist, and then as needed ad hoc, they'll bring on a speech pathologist, an occupational therapist, you know, some, an audiologist, something like that. So that team, um, once they receive a referral, has to meet with the parent within 20 days. But the team has to look at when interventions were done, and that's the problem that trips up a lot of parents. I want to pause you right there because we're, we're, there's a couple of things that I want to make sure that uh, the parents that are listening make this clear on, on um, the, the actual referral can come from a parent could write to the, the team saying that I want my child study. Um, Correct. There's also, depending on your school district as well, Kathleen mentioned there's certain, you know, were interventions that were done before. So you might have an intervention in referral service or INRS team that kind of precedes some of that stuff. Um, you also could have a 504 situation as well, which I'm going to get into the difference between the 504 and, and IEP um, mm -hmm. as well. So uh, for the parents out there that, you know, simply if you want your child study, you can simply write a letter to your school's child study team saying, I would like them to be studied. But there's also other avenues to do that. Teachers themselves are not supposed to make referrals. They can't make referrals, but they can obviously give you all the resources. Now, Kareem, I want to bring you into this discussion at this point because um, a lot of parents, there's a stigma that comes with child's, their child being in a child study team because um, one, you're ashamed to admit that they may have a disability. What can we do as educators to kind of educate the, the community so that we can kind of get rid of the stigma of the, the child study team, your child being into child study team? Well, I, I think more important than anything is that even before a teacher is having this sensitive conversation with a parent and or with a student, that should not be the first intervention is when a student is struggling in the classroom. Mom, you should probably write a note and we may be, no, that is not the first intervention. Like, like Ms. Sweeter said, how about figuring out whether or not if you're moving too fast? How about figuring out rather than not if they truly understand the, the content? Because they may not be able to understand the content, which is causing you to see the different behaviors. Or how about this? How about trying to figure out if there's something going on at home that can be causing them? Maybe the lights are on. Maybe it's too dark for them to read because there's no electricity or the family's struggling economically. So there, there's a, a lot of reasons as to why students struggle academically. And I don't think that the first response for us as educators should be, you should write a letter. Because even as Kathleen said, we're just going to have a meeting first and we're just going to talk. Mm -hmm. And then we want to set up another meeting then possibly, you know, decide rather than not. Uh, if we can schedule you to even find out if you actually have a learning disability. Mm -hmm. So that time that this student is, is going through the process, it's not helping. Because again, he's still going to be struggling. Even we take the last day, the 19th day or the 30th day, whichever um, policy your district follows, this is still 29 or 28 days that this kid is still struggling. Mm -hmm. Now, as, as far as the stigma, everybody is, has limitations and not everybody learns at the same pace. And I think that parents have to really understand what is the learning style of your particular child. For me, I, I'm someone that can listen. Don't you sit me down, try to have me read no book. We'd be sitting there all night. But no, but if you tell me I'm more of a, 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 a learner that can learn vocally, then and you can actually show me, and then, then I'll get it. You just have to really understand what your son or daughter's learning style is because that's so important. You have to know your child. Me, so you always say be a student of your student. How about being a student of your child and knowing your child? Makes sense. Makes sense. I always look at it and I try to tell parents this. I said, we've got to look at what is the best placement for your child, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, let's take a student that might need ESL services, right? That may be struggling. 
Is it more beneficial for that student to be in that ESL class or into that special education class, even though he might get a one-on-one aid or some other services, but which is more beneficial? So I think mm-hmm. school districts got to do a better job of explaining what all the services are uh, in either school and then trying to figure out what's best for each individual child. You might actually be doing a kid a disservice by putting them mm-hmm. in a child uh, special education um, course. Now, mm-hmm. Amy Kathleen mentioned the team. As a teacher, part of that team, you're part of that team. What are some of the things that you uh, assess and bring to the table during, a, let's say, a, a typical IEP information gathering session? Like, what information are you being asked of as a teacher? So we're definitely at students' levels um, in meetings, so that requires a lot of data keeping throughout the school year, um, different types of tests to determine if there's any growth throughout the school year, and then also um, what type of modifications and accommodations we're using in the classroom setting to allow that child to either succeed or, if they're not working, what else we think that we should be doing in addition to what we're already doing in the classroom. Now, Jamie threw out some big words out there, modifications <laughs> and accommodations. I'm going to try to break it down. So Kathleen, can you break down the difference between a modification and an accommodation? Because I hear it all the time in meetings and parents get confused because the words get changed. And I'm like, no, that's not what that is. That's, that's what this is. What is the difference between a modification and an accommodation? So I think the best uh, explanation is that a modification means you're changing. You're modifying something. An accommodation is something is where the curriculum doesn't require um, a change. So modifying, I'm changing typically curriculum somehow. An accommodation is something that I can do for you so that you can access your curriculum the way it is, but I haven't had to change it. So if I'm going to take the same test as my peers, not changed, so not modified, but in order for me to do that, I just maybe process my math a little slower. I need time. Time would be the accommodation. So I can take the same test as everybody else. I can follow the same curriculum. I just need time. Or um, I have um, you know, problem focusing in the classroom. So I, I should never be in that first seat because if I miss that teacher's direction, and I'm in the first seat, I'm gonna turn around to see what everyone else is doing and now I'm gonna be in trouble again. But I, but I might do really well in the second seat because then if I miss what the teacher said, I have someone in front, a row in front of me that I can look at, right? I didn't change any, any of the curriculum, I just made an accommodation so you could access the curriculum. But if I have to change the curriculum, that's a modification. So, you know, maybe I have to, um, I'm going to take a math test. It's very similar to my peers, but I'm not going to have the word problems on this math test. And I'm changing something. That's, that's a modification. Does that make sense? Makes perfectly good sense to me. I get it. I hope people that listen, they will get it. (laughs) (laughs) Earlier, so if they don't get it, they can watch podcasts over and over again. As many times as they need to. Yeah, they can. Get our viewership up. Keep rewinding and watching the kids. We're going to call, we're going to YouTube, you're going to call YouTube, and we're going to get that modification for them. <laughs> we'll change anything. That's, that's funny. So, Kathleen, you mentioned earlier 504 versus an, an IEP, and we can even throw INRS in there. 504 is technically fall under special education umbrella. Can you explain the difference between the two up? Correct. Sure. So honestly, for me, it, it's, it helps me look at the origin or where did this all start, right? So special education was, was designed so that students um, who we recognize these learning differences uh, could receive um, supports in, in their education or a different education. You know, that's basically what's special in special education. Um, 504, if you think about like the Rehabilitation Act, and um, think of people coming back wounded for war, and they, and they, you know, now may, because of their injury, they might have um, what's considered a disabling condition, but what would, what would they need to be able to be successful in the workplace? Like that's really where 
the Rehabilitation Act came into place. So if you think of kind of like the origin of the two, it's, e it's easier to kind of put to understand. So if I have a medical um, condition and it inhibits me in the classroom, but I, so I need something, right? Um, I might need some accommodations, but I don't need specialized instruction, right? Then that's kind of a 504. I mean, if you think about it, if you're in special ed, you, there's some special education teacher like Jamie who's somehow connected to you, you know? Like you could see her a lot or you could see her a little, but somehow you are connected to the special educator. In 504, you're not connected to a person, but you might need a piece of equipment in your room, like, an F like a sound field system, like an FM system. Um, and with that, you can access your education. So like I have students who are deaf and hard of hearing um, that, I, that I take care of. Some students need a special education teacher, you know, um, to access curriculum, but other students just need to make sure that we have um, like a, a sound field system that interacts with their cochlear or their boots. So a person kind of versus equipment almost. Right, so even though the lines of that probably is definitely blurred now, but in mm -hmm. its original form, I guess to put it very, very basic, a 504, what I'm hearing is a 504 is more physical and the IEP might be more cognitive. Even though the lines are a little bit blurred right now because there are certain school districts that are, I think, using 504s incorrectly, <laughs> but that's another yeah. podcast for another time. But it's the same <laughs> thing on a very fundamental, basic level that, that that's really a, if I could break it down. Right, but the one thing I've heard people say that I think is incorrect is they'll say like, oh, you know, you really need an IEP for your child because that's a lot, you know, that's a heavy, that's a weightier document, like that means more. Well, a 504 document, like if you violate that, that's the Office of Civil Rights that's coming down on you. Mm -hmm. To be honest, like that scares me more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because I think I could beg for forgiveness on the other side, and we could work it out. Mm -hmm. um, so if you ask me which document, you know, um, is more weighty, I'm like, I don't really think you can say that. I think that's a an under uh, understand, you know, misunderstanding of the concept. They're both weighty documents in their own right. right. You don't want to violate either one of them. The IEP is going to be more intense because it's going to lay out an instructional plan. A 504 is not going to lay out a plan. They're going to say, you know, this is what this child needs to access their curriculum. Now, Jamie, in your classroom, um, the IEP, uh, I guess just to break it down a little bit, um, as a teacher, you, one of your first things is you should obviously identify that you have special education students in there, but looking at their IEPs, like what are some typical things that you might see in, in a student's IEP from a teacher's perspective? Oh, I think that some of the most common things that I see is small group testing, um, study guides, read alouds, um, extended time to hand in papers. Those are probably the most popular um, accommodations that we see in an IEP. Um, access to books on tape. Um, the, those are more along the lines of things that we see that are in a lot of uh, my students' IEPs. Okay, so let's go back to the process. So now I'm a parent, we're in a meeting, the team is there. What kind of things are being discussed in this initial meeting? So your initial ID meeting, um, just so you know, that's gonna, that's gonna occur 20 days after the team receives that referral. Whether that referral is from the parent, a teacher, INRS, whoever, um, that's gonna happen. Um, in that meeting, that should really be the, the parent and the teacher's platform to, to tell that team about that child and, and what they see, and especially for the teachers to provide some data. That's very, very important for the team to get a holistic picture. And we have to have the parents' information there. Now, it's not gonna be super in-depth. In I mean, you're talking about a 30-minute type, probably type of meeting, but you you've, are basically presenting the student so that the team can say, okay, basically, am I hearing some red flags? Does, do we suspect that this child could have a disability? If so, 
let's plan out what kind of testing we're going to do. And you plan that out, that team is required to plan that out based on what disability they suspect. So that's why I'm saying like that information that comes to that ID meeting is very important because you're pointing the team in the right direction. You know, or they're going to say, you know, there's not enough information here to convince us that this is a student who might have a disability. Or you've identified a problem, but we haven't seen any intervention to try to address the problem. Because if, if we provide an intervention and a student responds, you know, that's what we want. We want the students to achieve, right? So that, you know, that, that's what's going to happen at that meeting. Um, you want your guardians there. You want a teacher there who knows, you know, the child. And then you want to basically try to point the team in the right direction. Now, parents, hear me clearly here. It is important for you to tell the truth and the whole story. Don't withhold information. Information is confidential. It's not going anywhere. But I look at it this way. You, you let's say you're taking your child to the doctor, right? And your doctor has some symptoms, right? Your child has some symptoms and whatever is hurting. You're not going to withhold information from the doctor because you want the doctor to be able to heal that, that child. So you, it's important for you to be open and honest about everything um, that you see at home and that they're asking you about the, you know, their development and those things of that nature. Be completely open and honest because the more information these teams have, the better off they can serve your child. It's a, it's a really important piece there. Um, I get some of the stuff may be embarrassing to you and it may be, um, you know, hurtful to bring you back, bring it back up, but it's important for schools to know this information so that they can accurately assess your child and actually accurately place your child and give them the services that he or she may need. So that's, that's extremely important um, piece to the, to the public. A parent really has to allow themselves to be vulnerable in this process, you know, in order to help their child. Um, and there's, there's really no embarrassment if you think of it like that's a good analogy of going to the doctor. You're probably going to assume the doctor's already heard it all. You know what I mean? Well, you can't imagine, you know, this is a confidential situation. Those teams have heard everything. You're not going to be the first person that ever sits in front of them and tells them X, Y, and Z. I guarantee it. Um, but if you could be vulnerable and talk about things going on and uh, you know, a little bit of even family history, if you see a connection um, between what you went through as a learner and then your own child, or even maybe you saw this with a, a your, you know, an older child and you didn't act on it. And then years later, you kind of regret it. And now you're trying to like head it off at the pass with, with, you know, the younger child. You just have to be able to, to do that because that team really can't move in the right direction. With, without the parents, you know, really being um, honest. Now, Kramer, I ask you a question, kind of in the same vein. You have a parent that comes, um, may have had some very bad ex experiences educationally, and now they have a child that's going through the system. And they come to you like, Mr. Spence, I don't trust these people. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know what to do. My child is struggling. Like, what kind of advice, what is that conversation like from your end, because I know it came to you before. I know parents have come up and said certain things to you. You talking, like, talking about like Friday, Thursday, what, what day are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so here's the thing, and uh, what Ms. Weider, you know, said was team. And when a parent doesn't feel that they're connected with school, they don't even feel part of the team. So for them to even feel vulnerable in a meeting and, and share, all that family history, they really have to believe that you have their best interest in mind, meaning their son or daughter. And if they don't feel that, then they're not going to be honest and they're going to be probably a little standoffish. Um, and it's going to be really difficult in putting the proper accommodations or even interventions to be able to help because they really don't feel like they're connected. Yeah. Now for me, what I try to do is let them know that they have someone that they can trust. So I can, I can be an advocate for them. I can be an ally for them so that if no one else they trust, then you can put your trust in me that my team is going to do the very best in being able to help your son or daughter to the best of their ability. Rather we get services or not, we still got to learn how to read. Rather we get services or not, you still have to know how to count. At the end of the day, you still have to know how to function as an adult in this world. So for me, it, it goes beyond just being able to get them to, to want like assistance. 
but more importantly, for them to be want to participate in this process and become a part of the team. That's good. Yeah, that's a good point you made because I want people to understand that whether you have a 504 or whether you are, your child is in child study team, it is, doesn't necessarily have to be a life sentence. Mm-hmm. I know that, that you get in there and then you just feel like there's no, no out, right? So especially with, you know, 504, because I'm part of 504 team, my goal is to actually hopefully get you to a point where you don't need these accommodations. You mm-hmm. don't, so we'll start weaning certain things off. We'll start, you know, getting you on your own two feet. So at some point in time, you won't need these accommodations, or at least learn how to manage your, your situation so that you don't need them. Um, mm-hmm. It's important for parents to know, too, that just because your child is in child study team, it, it may not necessarily be a life sentence. Um, mm-hmm. But you have to advocate for your child, too, because, um, you know, they'll keep them in there forever. You mm-hmm. know, unless you, you know, work with your child and work on those targets, because in your IEP, you're going to have certain targets that you're going to meet. Mm-hmm. You have the plan. It's, it's written right out there for you where you need to be at X amount of time. So let's work to try to get these uh, accommodations, you know, or modifications um, removed at some point. Mm-hmm. So it definitely doesn't have to be a life sentence. The other piece is mm-hmm. a living document. Mm-hmm. It can be changed. It can be revised. It can be updated. Don't think just because this is what's happening now, it's going to mm-hmm. happen in your whole entire career. Good schools mm-hmm. and good teams are supposed to be uh, assessing the plan <laughs> constantly mm-hmm. and making changes constantly. Uh, so if this is not happening, as parents, you need to go back in and advocate for your child. Like, all right, it's kind of, again, like the doctor. They're going to give you some medication. You're going to assess, is the medication working? Uh, just, no, some side effects. Something. Let's go back and revisit it. It's the same mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of concept. So it's, it's mm-hmm. really, really important for you to, as parents, to stay on top of that. If you're not going to read anything else, make sure you read that plan. Ask questions for the next meeting because we're meeting every year. And so I love, I, I love the word advocate when you said like I, I'd be the parent's advocate. So that's something else that's important for parents to know. When you're invited to a meeting, it's going to say in your invitation, do you want to bring anybody? Mm-hmm. And by all means, you know, bring someone you trust to that meeting so that you have an extra set of ears. And, and I've worked with child study teams to try to get them to imagine how it feels for a parent to walk into a meeting where you have, you know, more than five people sitting around a table. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that's intimidating. Like, I, you, know, you, you, you know, like imagine that walking in, who are these people? And, and, and that you're, you're like, you know, you've been invited to a party, but you don't know any of the other guests really, really well there. You know, you're going to feel a little awkward and secure. And then if they're talking about things and asking you questions, can you remember everything? So it says in your invitation that you legally, you can bring somebody and just, you know, let the team know basically. And then, and bring a trusted friend if you want. Mm -hmm. And that person can sit and even just take notes for you so that you can feel comfortable talking to the team and asking questions and answering questions. So like, definitely you're part of that team, but you know, it, it doesn't have to be one-sided, you know, bring someone with you just, just for someone to have your back. When you leave the meeting, you can say, Hey, did you hear them say this? Did, did you hear them say that? Did we remember to ask this question? Real, it's real important. You don't have to walk in there on your own. Bring a pen and a pad and write stuff down because you're not going to remember everything verbatim that was said. Even though they're going to give you the little document you can mm-hmm. review, you need to make sure that you are writing this stuff that you're talking about your child here. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, don't come in there and, and just sit there and try to remember everything that, that's going on in there. Take notes. It's important for you to do that. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the educator side of it, especially now during COVID. Um, things have definitely changed, obviously, in education across the board. Trying to teach remotely, hybrid, it's all new, it's all different. The way education is being done, it's never been done before. So now you have that on top of trying to provide modifications and accommodations to students remotely and, uh, and in person. Jamie, as an educator, how difficult or what is that experience like for you? I see you shaking your head like you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Definitely. It's like when you, this is year 15 for me. So year 15 is almost supposed to be kind of easy. You, you know what you're doing. You 
look back on what you've done in the past, it, there is none of that anymore. Everything is brand new. So every lesson that I'm teaching right now is brand new. I'm making new material. I'm working at nighttime over the weekends to get stuff ready for my students. So it's almost like being a new teacher all over again. I think that's a good thing. Even on an administrator's standpoint, I feel like, you know, if you've been in it for so long, it just becomes, you know, routine. It's like, all right, this is something new. This is a whole new prob problem I have to, to solve. But also from a teaching perspective, it's kind of like, well, here's an opportunity for me to sharpen some new tools in my toolbox, you know what I mean? And, and, and expand on my, you know, teaching skills and ability. Kathleen, from a special education perspective, how difficult or what were some of the challenges that you're facing right now in the world of education with, with remote slash hybrid or whatever you want to call this learning? That's a load of question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so being able to support the families at home, being able to support the teachers going through it, like Jamie just discussed is um, it's all consuming. And getting everyone to recognize that not everyone has the same opportunity for learning at home. Mm. You know, like we, I think we hope as educators, the classroom is a good equalizer. You know what I mean? Like if you can shut everything else out, can you control what happens within your room and support your students? And, you know, um, remote instruction kind of takes that away. So, you know, getting educators to also, um, you know, realize you know, what's going on, you know, three kids on devices at the same time, um, families that have four children who have IEPs, like it's, it's intense. Mm -hmm. So getting everyone, I would say, to communicate and have relationships um, it is the key. That's what really worked for us last spring um, was, uh, I mean, the one thing everyone said to me was, you know, I know the parents so much better um, than, than I did before March, right? So and I know it's kind of hard right now because we just kind of got back in the door, you know, per se. And, but thank goodness we did so we could get that, that connection and start building those relationships. Um, and another challenge to that is beyond, um, you know, the classroom and that instruction is also teletherapy. You know, this was something that public schools were not allowed to do in Jersey, you know, and then, so again, just like Jamie said, you have a, a, a group of professionals and it's like day one of being a speech pathologist, you know, or an occupational therapist. And, and what about a physical therapist who usually does hands-on learning? And, and we have students that learn through, um, you know, ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis, and that hands-on learning. Um, it's, it is a challenge to duplicate that. I've seen amazing things. Uh, you know what I mean? I've seen teachers and what, the, what they'll make for students and make sure it goes home so that they can participate in this remote instruction but you know, have a laminated sheet in front of them with you know pictures on Velcro strips and move it around and actually be interacting with like it is the creativity is amazing, um, but but it's a challenge because let's just face it, not what is everyone's capacity to be that creative too. So um, then so again those relationships. So then forming a group of professionals who can help each other as well. You know, um, that was a big part of, of what we did with the related service providers, you know, bringing people who might be like, you might have five occupational therapists, but they all work in different buildings. and They don't know each other. Well, if you can bring them together virtually and they can lean on each other for ideas, you're going to have better services. I don't know if that answers the question, but. <laughs> yeah, but I think one of the things that you that keeps resonating in all of these podcasts that we're doing during this time is. To, to me, the root of education is relationship building. And mm -hmm. I find that early on, the teachers that were struggling had issues with building relationships with, with their kids and their, their parents, right? So the ones that really, really were up against it and having really an issue with it, I found that they didn't have that skill, that skill set. That should be day one, number one. It's just telling me that you, don't, you haven't developed that relationship with your children. 
I get the times that you're gonna have to reinvent yourself. I get the the anxiety and all that stuff right there. But bottom line is, if I'm a student, I'm not coming to your Zoom session if I don't like you. Right. Right. <laughs> I'm not doing it. So ground number one, especially if I got parents at home that don't care if I show up or not, I'm not coming. Mm-hmm. Want me to sit in front of on my comfortable couch eating chips in front of this computer and watch somebody that I don't like. <laughs> number one job is to build that relationship from the from the gate. So what we try to do, at least at our school, is that first couple of weeks is become a student of your student, get to know them, to know the parents, understand that that parent is sitting right next to here, their child at home, probably taking a test for them. That's how <laughs> all of that. So build that that relationship, <laughs> Kareem. How how important is? I know we talk about it all the time, but just in case people haven't heard it before, how important, especially right now, when your child is actually remote or hybrid, is developing that relationship between your teacher and student and parent. I'll I'll say this, um, as like professional educational professionals, we own year to year contracts. I don't know if everybody understands that. <laughs> our contracts are year to year. And and when you say teachers are having difficulty with building relationships, they might want to opt out because it's not going to get any better in the years coming because now with the new and transition and they realize how much success we've had with educating via online, um, it's going to be the new standard. Um, and when you say that parents are listening, you may not be able to see what's going on behind the camera, but parents are watching and they're telling on you. I know this because they call me and tell me all the time. <laughs> you know what's going on with these kids? No, I don't know what's going on. Uh-huh. You might want to go into that classroom and figure out what's going on. Now for me, because I have uh, about maybe 85 classes. Now I got to figure out which code goes to which classroom at a particular time. So by the time I get on there, none of that even is even happening no more because it takes me about 20 minutes. But um, yeah, I mean, but you're, but you're right. I mean, to be able to build a rapport, you're actually building a partnership. And for our students that are so young, they're not doing the work because they, I should say, all of them are doing the work. Majority of them are doing the work because they like it. It's only a small percentage that is doing the work because they realize how important it is for the opportunities later on in life. But for most of them, if they like you, it's nothing that they won't do for you. But if they don't like you, they're not coming to the classroom, they're not doing the work or anything like that is going to occur. That goes for administrators and supervisors as well. Get to know your students. There's, I've been popped in so many Zooms and so many meetings with students that haven't been doing work and it's like, oh, Mr. Josie's here, right? I need to make sure that I at least do this assignment. Like, you know what I'm saying? And it's not even coming from like an authoritative position, but mm-hmm. I've developed a relationship with 99% of the students in the, in the building where I can have them sit down and be like, all right, listen, we got to get this work done. And they'll respond mm-hmm. to it because of the relationship that has been developed. Mr. Josie's here. Turn off TikTok, y'all. Mr. Yeah. Josie's here. Stop TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> Put that ball down in the back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That all of a sudden cameras are popping on, and I'm actually seeing students in the session before you get that little circle with the little initial in it. <laughs> it's all good though, but it's it's all relationship building at the end of the day. Um, that's that's key for for any educator. But um, it's it's a definitely definitely a difficult time, and I and it's hard to to make those adjustments from the special education world but there's got to be some give and take on parent side of it too there's some things that we just physically are not going to be able to do like you mentioned ot like how do you do that a pt how do you do that if your kid is home like you you gotta Mm -hmm. work with again develop that relationship to be able to work with school to be able to do that i've seen i've seen amazing things but um you know another thing is if a parent has a student that has an iep and they don't think you know, the remote education's hitting the mark and they've had maybe a discussion with the teacher and it's not happening. Um, That next step in that relationship is that case manager. So that was really big last year too, um, because we we also saw some students that, you know, they thrive in a structured environment and you can't duplicate that at home. Like I said, if you have, you know, four children with IEPs simultaneously, like you just can't do it. So, um, 
you know, parents who reached out to case managers and had this conversation and told them what was going on, that helped a lot that they trusted the case manager. And again, it's a two-way street. You know, I saw that happening, like, like you said, with the case managers who already had built that relationship, right? Um, but now the parents could say like, hey, this is something that's going on. And even though we hadn't seen that at school, now how can we wrap our head around that and what can we do? You know, and so we were able to do some things like pull in a behavior specialist, even if it wasn't in a student's IEP, um, because, you know, the parents, you know, maybe needed some help set, setting up that learning environment or whatever. So um, real important, too, that parents know where, who can they turn to. And if your case manager doesn't answer, then you better find the supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> if your supervisor don't answer, don't call me. I'm going to call the supervisor and say, why did you answer that call in the first place? I'm not opting out, too. Don't call me either. I don't know why they're not answering the phone. <laughs> Matter of fact, I tried to call them the other day. They mad at me now. They're not answering my calls because of you. <laughs> We, we should call fire about that. <laughs> That's too funny. Well, I want to switch gears real quick before we get out of here. Uh, Kathleen, I know I mentioned earlier that you are an avid reader, and I haven't talked to you in a while. I need a good book. It mm. has to be educational. I just okay, well, um, all right. I'm, I'm excited that you asked because I actually um, was able to take some me time with reading, you know, when, um, when life was getting crazy last spring and, um, and I was telling all my teachers, you know, this is a, you know, this is not a sprint, you're in, you're in it, then I realized I had to start taking my own advice. So I had to get back to the stuff I love, you know, which is reading. So um, I just finished an edu I just finished a book, I wouldn't say it's educational, um, but uh, actually just ordered it because I listened to it online when I was walking. And I liked it so much, I was like, I have to have this one, because this is one I have to read again and write in the margins. Um, and that's, uh, I actually have it right here, because it just came in. Uh, leading through language. Leading through language, choosing words that influence and inspire, by Bart Engel. So that's a good, just inspirational. And then um, my favorite fiction, I can give you two, one, you're not going to love. It's a chick flick. Jamie can read it in 10 years. Um, it's, a, it's, a really, it's a really old one called uh, uh, something like um, I Hate My Neck and Other Things About Being a Woman This Age. But it's written by Nora Ephron, who was the um, comedic um, author who wrote like When Harry Met Sally and everything like that. So Jamie, you've got a few more years left, but you call me in five years, I'll give you the name of that book. Yeah, I um, don't know how I, thought you, I thought she was talking about her neck. Like, you ain't got five more left. <laughs> five more years of that neck. But uh, I just read a piece of historical fiction that's called um, Daughter of a Daughter of a Queen. Have you heard that one? No. All right. It is awesome. Um, it's about Kathy Williams. Uh, former slave and becomes enlisted in the Buffalo Soldiers, mm -hmm. uh, disguises herself as a man. Mm -hmm. Really, really awesome book. And the narrator is so good, I would actually advise that you listen to that one because the narrator is that good. So I, you can't do it? Well, here's my thing. I tried the audio books. I don't like sitting and listening to people talk, like go to class or anything like that. I can't, I'd rather read. I gotta, I, I don't know. I, I can't sit and listen. Yeah, it's such a good story either way. But um, I, uh, I, I discovered when I was trying to like get out and walk and um, not gain my COVID-19 during COVID-19, um, that the public library has a free app called Libby. Mm -hmm. Didn't know that, you know. So that that was amazing because I could just you know go on there, download a book, and go for a walk. But uh, just I wish more, more educators would read. Like I don't see how you are in education and you don't constantly read and try to you know pick up information and, and things of that nature. So so it's kind of refreshing to actually have these conversations with you when we were working together. I was like, holy moly, somebody actually read it. <laughs> I have a conversation with. <laughs> My favorite college professor said, uh, if you're too busy to read, you're too busy to lead. Mm. You know, if you're a teacher, you're a leader. So um, I took that to heart. 
That's pretty deep. That's dope. Mm. Interesting. I'm not even going to ask you, Kareem, what last book you read, because this is the Rated G podcast. I don't need to talk about no iceberg slim. <laughs> I don't need to. So I'm going to throw the question to Jamie. <laughs> the last book that you read or listened to? I'm reading a book right now. It's really uh, it's interesting. It's a true story. It's called um, Who Will Hold Me? Um, it's I'm only reading a few pages at a time because she tells a very deep story. Um, so I can only take so many pages of it at a time. It's another ever to read this book. Another chick flick book. Is that, <laughs> you know, like it's it's an inspirational story of of a woman getting out of a very difficult situation. So when I read, sometimes I like to go back and reread the page if there was something on there that I think it that I need to hear again and I highlight and I, I really I take a lot of time reading books like this. Interesting. Really, really interesting. Bunch of chick flicks. Can, can we talk about cake? Because like Kathleen likes she likes cake too. She's a foodie. That is true. Yeah. She's <laughs> <laughs> like Kareem, you completely made that up. <laughs> I don't like no cake. <laughs> Is it true you're a foodie? She's a foodie. I don't know. I'm spoiled because my husband cooks for me. And we have issues when we move to South Jersey with all the food. Mm. Does he have a I, brother? I, <laughs> <laughs> I missed that one. Something about, something about her neck. You got like five and a half years, six years. I don't know. Better protect your neck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to text Jamie the name of that book today. You all right, Okay, just check it. Just check it. Well, Kathleen, definitely thank you for being on and giving us some wonderful information that we can pass on to our listeners more geared towards uh, parents than more so than educators is kind of what I wanted to do because um, for whatever reason, parents are not getting this information. A lot of them are, and they're just kind of learning through the, going through the process of, for the first time. And it can be intimidating because you are sharing sensitive information. You don't understand everything that's really going on in terms of services or how it's going to impact the child and all these things. Um, so at least getting an under basic understanding of the process um, is, is very, very helpful. So I'm definitely thankful. Um, so Jamie, any last words before we get out of here? No, I, it was a great conversation, but I think the best part was finding out that Kathleen's husband cooks for her. <laughs> I'm going to have a conversation with him. You know. <laughs> I'm gonna say, listen, Mike, there's HelloFresh out there. She can just follow the instructions. She can't really mess that up at least three times a week. Husband's brother. <laughs> and and don't, say, don't say the word can't. I can mess anything up that has to take place on a stove or in an, in an oven. <laughs> Unbelievable. Many last words before we get out of here. Uh, I, I will say that in the three years we had to wait. For Miss Peter to pop onto the podcast, <laughs> she did bring some really good content, so we're appreciative for that. Um, and really, just helping parents get some really good information to navigate through the education process because it is really extremely tough. Like we know because we're in it, but when you're outside trying to access certain things, it becomes really, really tough. So just want to thank her for showing up finally three years. I don't know, like if she was in prison for three years, she had to be like two and a half and see a furlough just for the weekend. The government did just release a whole bunch of people. Um, so I don't, I don't know, maybe Kathleen was one of them. She has some That is pretty funny. Uh, yeah, the people out there that are listening, don't forget um, our toy drive is going on right now for the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I don't care if you are going to donate to our cause, donate to somebody during the holiday season. 
Um, I know this podcast is going to come out past Giving Tuesday, but there's opportunities for you to do that not only on mm-hmm. Tuesday, but throughout the season. Um, even if you just pick a local family in your neighborhood, decide to bless um, with a meal or, or something, a couple of gifts for, for their children, just do something because the world definitely needs some positivity mm-hmm. and, and some, some loving and, and, and healing right now. So make sure you're doing that. Uh, we're going to keep trying to bring you some fire content. I don't know who we got on next week, but we got somebody on next week. I know we got somebody coming on with a nonprofit that's doing wonderful things about um, how to build your resume and do interview techniques and all that stuff. So we're going to have them on there too, on, on here too. So um, we just want to keep trying to bring you this fire content before the end of the new year because then we're going to do our countdown and then we'll wrap up season five and hopefully be back in season six. We still got people watching this. <laughs> Until next time. Don't get that COVID. That's absolutely. Don't get that COVID and you watch it. Until next time, stay in power.